Remember in the movie Groundhog Day when Bill Murray stoically asked this question? What is the Roan? What is the Roan? The Roan, good for $1,000. You $500. Well, I'll tell you what the Roan is. Roan is a clothing company that inspires men to live healthy, strong, and free. Building best-in-class products is no easy task. In fact, it's a grueling process of trial, error, and at times unexpected success. Roan worked tirelessly to ensure the products you ordered exceed expectations. Roan is clothing made for men, for everything from the gym to the office. We're teaming up with Roan and Podgo to bring our listeners this exclusive offer. 25% off a pack of three Roan polo shirts by going to podgo.co slash Roan. That's podgo.co slash R-H-O-N-E for 25% off a pack of three polos. Roan, clothing that helps you move forever forward. And now, in spite of our better judgment, this is Teller Hell. It's that time again. Uh, no, 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 not that one. Uh, play the theme that came along after that. motion picture the abc friday night movie if you remember our history lesson on abc's movie of the week last year then you know the part where by the end of the program's run made for tv movies wound up getting folded into a more generic movie night umbrella and from 1975 until the time came when airing a movie on network television fell pointless the abc insert day of the week here movies were the place people tuned in to see some of the biggest movies of the day without having to shell out extra for cable or streaming services that probably didn't exist yet and folks i'm not gonna lie Today's subject is probably going to be the most difficult assignment that I've been given here so far. Not because the thing that we're going to be looking at is bad by any means. Far from it. But that's exactly the point. This particular TV movie has gone down in history to some as a flat-out masterpiece. But even masterpieces have their flaws. Do you ever, um... Do you ever, you know... All the time. <laughs> Me too. Oh, sure, this looks like a feel-good TV movie about hope and survival. But once you hear how screwed up some of this movie is, you'll understand why we would want to place it in our own hermetically sealed containment unit of Telehell. This is TV movie number three in our contract to cover four of them in this season of Telehell. And normally, whenever we take a look at a TV movie, we judge only the plot of the movie and nothing else. But this one has a slight bit more backstory than we're used to. Before he became America's third favorite Scientologist, guess the other two, I dare you. 
The most recognizable roles that John Travolta was famous for in the early 1970s were a couple of bit parts in TV shows and a couple of commercials that were more than happy to play for you later on. But that all changed when he was among a handful of people cast in one of the biggest hit sitcoms of 1975, as Travolta led the Sweat Hogs on Welcome Back, Cotter as Vinny Barbarino. And while the show was kind of just okay, tell that to the vast audience of teenage girls who would watch the show each week just to see him. Because I doubt those same girls were tuning in to see that boiling pot of sex, Gabe Kaplan. Because of the admiration he was receiving, naturally, his star would rise. So much so that he wound up catching the attention of director Brian De Palma, who would give Travolta a significant role in 1976's Carrie. Oh, shit! I thought I told you never to call me that. You know, you are totally fucked up. That's it. You really are, I know that. I'm convinced. Between Cotter and Carrie, it seemed pretty obvious that Travolta would corner the popularity market in the teenage demographic. The typical girls wanted him, boys wanted to be him mentality, basically. But if he was going to become a future box office draw that appealed to all audiences, he would have to take on roles of maturity. One such role would come courtesy of Aaron Spelling Productions via director Randall Kleister and writers Douglas Day Stewart and Joe Morgenstern. The tale of a young man who was born without a fully developed immune system. The inspiration for the movie was based on the lives of two specific cases, David Vetter and Ted DeVita, both of whom were born with the same affliction. The kind that no matter how clean the air was outside, even a breath of it could cause great harm to both. This resulted in the boys being raised primarily via incubation chambers in their respective homes with limited access to the outside world. An outcome so unfortunate for both boys that Hollywood somehow felt deep down it was willing to exploit. You see, the ABC Movie of the Week program did more than just bring in ratings. It did so by exposing the audience to watching a random peril that happened in each week's movie, whether it be horror or suspense like in our previously reviewed Bad Ronald, or an incurable disease like the one we're about to go through. Maybe it's because the viewer's schadenfreude reflex went into overdrive, but the notion of watching people suffer debilitating fates just lit up the Nielsen ratings every time it was on. No matter how much they try to portray things, with dignity, the key word being try. To help tell the story, the movie was packed with some reasonable talent in addition to Travolta. Playing Travolta's father is a previous survivor of our wrath. All the Brady men have perm. That way our hair doesn't get in our eyes when we're fixing our bikes. I know, I thought I was done making fun of Robert Reed, but hell wouldn't be hell without continuous repetition of torture. Not that I want to knock him for his acting decisions post-Brady Bunch, but once you do something like this in front of an audience of millions... My wife, she's an art. I'm crazy. It's hard to take the guy seriously. Other participants in the story include one of the all-time great old-school actors, Ralph Bellamy as the family doctor. Though, while his resume goes all the way back to the 1930s, chances are you might remember him best as this guy. Commodities are agricultural products, like pork bellies, which is used to make bacon, which you might find in a bacon and lettuce and tomato sandwich. 
And as the mother of the family, veteran TV star Diana Hyland. And before you jump ahead of me, a reminder that, yes, we made rules back in season one about what we refused to cover on the show. I bring that up because one of those rules was about how we would never exploit the real-life deaths of people from television. But to clarify, we only meant those rare cases when somebody died during the production of a TV program, particularly in a true crime kind of way. We mention this because Highland, who incidentally dated Travolta after the movie's production, was diagnosed with breast cancer after the movie was filmed. Unfortunately, she would not survive that diagnosis and ultimately pass away a few months after the movie was released. This doesn't really add or subtract anything from what we're about to look at. I just know that a look at the movie would be incomplete without at least mentioning that. So there you go. Now that we got that out of the way, let the incubation process begin! November 12th, 1976. The nation's bicentennial was nearing a close. Gerald Ford lost the presidential election to a guy who grew peanuts for a living. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central, we begin with a glimpse inside life back in the late 1950s. Somewhere in small-town suburbia, Bellamy, who I will refer to from here on out as Dr. Randolph Duke, comes across Mike Brady and the wife he had before meeting Carol, where he gives them some good news. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Lubitsch. Right, Doctor. I've just come from the hospital. The tests are in, and you're pregnant. Congratulations. That's wonderful. Did you hear that, honey? But the notion of Mom expecting has her feeling a little agitated. Wonder why. I don't want to lose another baby. Oh. I couldn't bear it. I just couldn't. Honey, even if the worst happened, the baby was born with no immunities this time, we're ready. I mean, immunologists like Dr. Gunther, they know how to save these children now. But, but how can we make a decision like that for another human being? I mean, what if... Oh, Johnny, do you think we could live with it? Oh. Never two people in the world more meant to be parents than you and me. So in what has to be the shortest amount of time to convince somebody to have a kid under unknown medical circumstances, the couple have their kid under unknown medical circumstances, up to and including the shutdown of the operating room's various air ducts. May we have the air conditioning ducts and the heat vents closed, please? And no movement while the air settles. Anybody down there planning on having an itch, please scratch it now. Not later, please. After that oddly specific warning and a lengthy sequence that showed off what passed for high-tech medicine in the late 1950s, the Lubitsch family gives birth to a son named... Todd! After getting the kid checked out, Dr. Randolph Duke meets up with Mom and Dad for more vital information. Mr. and Mrs. Lubitsch, he was born exactly like your first son, with no amenities whatsoever. Until he develops an immune system of his own, he'll have to remain in his protected environment. Surely you can give us some kind of a prediction. I mean, are we talking about days or weeks or months? Years. Sorry, 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 I had to do that. But that shouldn't take away from how serious this situation is for the kid. So much so that the movie then jumps four years ahead. 
As time passes, Mama Lubitsch becomes jealous of her neighbor and her daughter being able to run wild and free. Which I know kind of sounds petty when I say it out loud, but then again, I don't have a kid with medical problems. Oh, I hate seeing that little girl near that. I'm always looking at her. <laughs> oh, you almost fell out. Did you almost know? look. Suppose we could devise some way of transporting him safely, and we could get them to go on paying for it, and, and manage the million and one other things we'd have to do. The sterilization of the food and the toys and the equipment. I don't think you realize what we'd be getting ourselves into if we did bring him home. And before you wonder just how they can afford to do any of this, a reminder that this is only a movie, and that you may need to suspend some disbelief for a few hours. Because keeping their son incubated around the house 24-7 is exactly what Todd's parents set out to do. A move so important that it winds up attracting TV news crews to their house. Little Todd Lubitsch, a child who has never felt his parents' touch except for the walls of this plastic bubble, and who may not for years to come, is finally coming home for the first time today. After a lengthy process, the medical people managed to bring Todd into the house safely. The news people still want a piece of Mike Brady, but after being a little too relentless, he shows off the side that he only reserves for when Paul Williams makes a pass at his wife. What is it like, Mrs. Lubitsch? Look, Never I've asked touch you nicely three times now. Will you just leave us be? Um, Mr. Lubitsch, won't you come out again and, and give us a... Take one more step and I'm going to knock your damn head off. Now get out of here. Come on. All right. As he's fending off the cameras, little Todd first lays his eyes on the little neighbor girl, Gina. While Gina stares with wonder at Todd's bubble and proceeds to welcome him to the neighborhood with open arms. While I'm sure that harmless taunting won't scar the kid in any way, My son's not a freak! Todd gets to know his new surroundings, while Mom and Dad discover that installing medical equipment is quite the turn-on, and they celebrate things going off without a hitch. Ooh! Ow! Champagne okay. Did I say without a hitch? Of course that's not true. The movie just started, and of course we have to put the kid in danger. Right. What is it? Honey, check the fans. Daddy, what is it? What is it? I don't know what to do. Everything's running. Check the generator. But it's running. You look at it. I mean, the equipment. Toddy, what is it? Just in case that wasn't clear, the problem wasn't anything to do with his immune issues, but rather the fact that Todd turned one of his teddy bear's eyes into a choking hazard. A hazard made all the more hazardous by the fact that it's hard to do the Heimlich with a pair of rubber gloves and plastic encasing, as well as a reminder that this is a movie from the 70s that took place in the 60s. Baby monitors and crib cams probably weren't even invented yet. Act 2 begins with a visit from the neighbors acting neighborly, and try to treat Todd like any other growing boy in an incubation cage. Come on, say hi to Gina. Come on, Toddy. Yeah! Let me go! Let me go! Oh, he's not hurting you. He's just playing with you. And while I'm wondering to myself how two four-year-olds can fall for each other while one is incubated, we get another time jump. This time, 12 years into the story, so for argument's sake, let's just say that we're in modern-day 1976, where Gina has now grown into a teenager and laments on her unusual neighbor. Don't you ever wonder what it's like in there? I mean, to be all by yourself like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. I'm honestly not sure how to answer that question. I mean, we'd almost have to have a pandemic for that to happen, am I right? But as the youths wonder what it's like for the boy, four-year-old Todd has now grown up into 22-year-old, 16-year-old John Travolta. Uh, don't read too much into that logic. We're gonna be here all night if we do. He continues to cope with life under the dome while Dr. Randolph Duke returns with a progress report. There's some news I think you might like to hear. A doctor in Tokyo believes he may have found a treatment that might stimulate the development of the humoral and cellular antibody. What kind of research has he done? So far, not too extensive. But by the middle of next year... Good news, Ernie. Keep me posted, will you? You really got it made, haven't you? Yeah, Why do you say that? Because you got the best excuse ever devised by anybody to avoid growing up. I'm growing up, Ernie. Yes. Sometimes you're like an old man. And other times you're like a newborn baby. That's nothing. You should see how his brother treats him about medical knowledge. Ah, Randolph, we're about to make millions of dollars in frozen orange juice and you're talking to me about human nature. Money isn't everything, Mortimer. Oh, grow up. Mother always said you were greedy. She meant it as a compliment. After that bit of uncomfortability, we join the Lubitsches at dinner, where Mike Brady is now in his standard-issue 70s man perm. All the Brady men have perm. And trying to treat the continuing situation as if it was perfectly normal. I'm telling you that that doctor that Ernie was talking about last week. You know, the one from Tokyo? Well, we haven't heard anything about him yet, honey, but there is a hematologist in Finland. That's Finland. i got to think got... about that, that school thing. And here's one of the things that frustrates me about this movie. I know we're only 24 minutes into it, and things do need to be drawn out for the sake of drama. But if I were in Todd's shoes, I'd take every chance that was given to me to get cured. Not get all mopey over the fact that life seems to be better inside than outside. Take it not just from me, but from billions of others around the world. All of us would rather be outside than inside right now. But sure, prolong the drama a little more just so we can see how Todd disguises being a peeping Tom with a sense of curiosity. I'm not kidding about that. The next thing that we see is Travolta spying on Gina getting undressed from afar. And now I'm wondering if this is about to become an unintended sequel to Bad Ronald. We already have the young man trapped in his own house and going through puberty at the same time, minus the manslaughter. Act 3 starts with TV technicians bringing in some closed circuitry so Todd could go to school without actually going to school. From the way the kids were staring at them, you'd think a cheesy TV movie was being filmed there. Hey! Hey! Come on, what is all this? Don't you know? Girl, is your name for the boy in the bubble? He's gonna monitor some classes on TV, and he chose our homework. He did? Yeah, come on! The prehistoric Zoom lesson goes as well as expected, but this being a movie geared towards a teen audience, there, of course, has to be some dickery. For the sake of this being a podcast, that includes Travolta wearing Groucho glasses and a hat on loan from one of the kids from Fat Albert. Hilarity ensues. No. That's so funny. All right, this has gone far enough. Unless every one of you want to be sent down to the principal's office, you'll cut it out right now. <laughs> this then segues itself back to a place where Todd could be. Outside, having fun amongst his fellow teens. Though given the age difference between him and them, 
I'm certain that when his first meeting between them ever happens, it'll probably turn out like this. How do you do, fellow kids? What? But not without poking holes in the movie's logic. If they can take him to and from the hospital in that small bubble, why don't they ever carry him outside or down to the beach or something? Well, they've been suggesting it for years, but Todd won't have any part of it. He says it'll make him feel like a freak being put on display. Gina, go over to the Lubitsch's, ask Todd if he'd like to come to the 4th of July party at the beach. Well, why don't you just call his parents or something? I want it to come from you. So, Gina does her neighborly duty, but not without getting a glimpse into Travolta's possible bubble-free future by dancing around in his movies without choreography. Suddenly startled by the first pair of boobs he's seen in his lifetime, because I'm guessing breastfeeding was out of the question due to, you know, issues, the conversation goes about as well as you think it does. Well, um, the reason I'm here is, um, I wanted to invite you to the 4th of July party at the beach. Um, if you can't make it, you know, everybody will understand, but at least you know that we wanted you to come. Well, hope you can make it. So after Travolta feels the force of Lord Xenu in his swimsuit area for the first time in his life, they actually manage to take him out of the house and onto the beach. The fact that he's in his portable, aquarium-sized bubble is enough for the fish in the ocean to praise Poseidon that they're not him. And as they're carefully placing Bubble Boy on the beach, Todd suddenly lights up at the sight of Gina riding a horse. What do you think of my horse? Oh, I love him. I watch you feed him every morning. And I, and I love to watch you ride him. You always talk like that. I love this, I love that. But I do, I really do. Well, to the movie's credit, it wouldn't matter if there were people in incubation chambers or not. Teens who may like each other tend to carry on awkward conversations. It's just a scientific fact. After that series of faux pas, the day turns into night. The perfect time to do a little bit of flirting. On a dare. Hey, I dare you. How much? I'll give you $2 if you hold his hand through the fireworks. Let me see the money. I don't believe you. You mean you're really going to do it? (laughs) Now, that may seem like a lame thing to wager on, but I'd like to think that there was some credence in what the movie Walk Hard warned us. You think we don't know what you're talking about when you say, take my hand? What do you mean? It's about holding hands. You know who's got hands? The devil. Hey, it's got the boss's name in there, so there's got to be some truth to that. Hi. Let's hold hands. What for? I just like to hold hands with you. Don't you know? When two people like each other, especially a boy and a girl, they like to hold hands. Jean. Yes? You really like me. (laughs) We'll hold my hand and find out. Sure enough, Todd holds Gina's hand via synthetic rubber glove just as fireworks go off. And based on the dopey grin that he manages to hold for the rest of the scene, so did Todd. Uh, phrasing? But just as he was getting spoiled to the decadence of hand-holding... Gina, what'd you run away for? Come back! Talk to me! Todd! They dared me, so I had to do it! Oh, guy... For a number of reasons I wish I could get into, I both sympathize and empathize with Travolta at the same time. 
I, too, knew what it was like to be led on by a member of the opposite sex. Probably far too often, both during my middle school, high school, college, and adult years. Unlike what Travolta's about to do, however, I kept my rage on the inside, and I didn't risk jeopardizing my immune system. I ate food out of depression, like a normal person. Act 4 kicks off with the aftermath, where Dr. Randolph Duke lets Todd know about all the rubber hoses he can stick up his nose, and also that he's getting a new roommate at the hospital. Todd Lubitsch, meet Roy Slater. Hi. Well, I'll leave you two fellas to get to know each other. Disappointed that it's not another girl who he can sinfully hold hands with, Todd makes the most out of his new roommate. The odd couple, they are not. What's the matter with you? Tumor. So why are you in one of these things? The chemotherapy kills off all my immunities. You know, I'm really glad I got someone to talk to now. I mean, they tried me with a couple others before. I'm sure the first one was even close to my age. Sure hope we can become friends. Hey! Okay, okay. Even the most diseased of people aren't that cruel. Come on, Todd. Make things right. Well, as close to right as you want to be, I guess. Inevitably, both boys in their individual plastic bubbles bond as only a cheesy TV movie can. You know what really bugs me? What? And when they discovered the tumor, I was too young for girls, you know? Yeah. And now that I'm old enough, I can't do anything about it. Sometimes I just get so... I can't stand it. And I think of all my friends out there going to drive-ins and making out and getting all that action. You know, the first thing I'm going to do when I get out of here is get me to give myself a hooker. I want the germs. I want to be dirty, really dirty, you know? Good for you. Are you sure you're not supposed to be in the psychiatric ward instead of the intensive care unit? Roy. Yeah? Do you ever, um, do you ever, you know, <laughs> all the time? <laughs> Me too. Congratulations! You've just heard the absolute last piece of dialogue you would ever want to hear between two young people in this or any other lifetime, one of whom is John Travolta. Reward yourself with a hot spike getting bored through your eardrums. Please tell me there's a way to wash out that imagery. Astronaut Buzz Aldrin visits young Todd Lupich, the boy who has grown up inside a plastic bubble. Oh, thanks, Satan, a cameo. But not just anyone. The second man to walk on the moon, one Mr. Edwin Eugene Aldrin Jr. But you may know him better as Buzz. And quite honestly, out of all the cameos he's made in TV shows and movies over the years, this appearance may be the most inexplicable. More so than this? Mission Control, this is Corvair. Launch sequence initiated. All systems go. Are we there yet? I'm thirsty. Or this. I own you! You dumb moon! I want 
marked on your face. Don't you know it's day? And even more than this. From a fellow space traveler, it's a true honor. The honor is mine. But to be fair, this was his first ever cameo after retiring from NASA. So, naturally, it's okay to get the kinks out of the system here. Hi, Todd. You're Buzz Aldrin, aren't you? The man who walked on the moon. Oh, God, I don't believe this. You know, I've been looking forward to meeting you, Todd. I hear you have the record for the longest time in a command module. Yeah, I guess so. I got a little something for you, too. To Todd, champion spaceman on Earth, Buzz Aldrin. Thank you. Hey, you spent some time in one of these things, didn't you, right after the moon flight? Something very much like it, Todd. Among those watching the interview was Gina, who may be slowly but surely realizing the errors of her ways at the beach party. What is it with you and that freak? He's my next-door neighbor. We grew up together. Is anything wrong with that? Don't call him a freak. And with that moment of self-realization, Gina tries to make it up to Todd's family for planting the seeds of mental cruelty by making herself available however she can. I hear Todd's going to monitor some classes again this year. That's why I'm rushing. I got books to get at the library and supplies to pick up for the stores. Listen, I can do all that for you if you want. What's the catch, Gina? Well, the main thing is, uh, I feel bad about what happened, and I'd like to help out. And uh, the other thing is, I, I'm broke, and I could really use the money. Okay, that's a deal. So, Gina's penance cure begins. But is Todd willing to forgive? How long has it been since you've had a shower? Oh, I can't have showers. And baths are major production. You should see it takes a couple hours just to sterilize the water. It must stink in there. Oh, no, no, you're wrong. No, no germs, no smell. So with that awkward chat on personal hygiene established, the fence is mended, and Todd can go back to making dopey grins at the thought of a girl, only for that grin to be wiped away when Gina doesn't show up at the end of school one day. So what gives? And more importantly... What gives with this movie? We're halfway through it, and while there are a few things about it that are highly questionable, I think the movie is a decent enough portrayal of something that seems to have happened in real life. Unless I'm missing something. But even though you are there, you shall see what goes on there from the vantage point of having been here. So that, what you hear people say in there, will not be hearsay, but there, there, that's... Oh, boy. I think I'm gonna need to recharge. Well, we'll take up the story after the break. I remember the day my father started saving for my college education. It was my 10th birthday, and he opened the savings account for $10. Brian, he said, you're going to have it better than me. You're not going to have to stand on your feet all day just to make a buck. You do the studying, and I'll do the saving. He had it all planned. There's only one thing he didn't plan. He didn't plan on dying. Sometimes the saddest thing about a man's death is to watch his dreams die with him. We at Money, Mutual of New York, understand how reluctant some people can be to discuss life insurance. But if you have children, you should talk to a money representative about insuring their future. Because as painful as it might be for your family to go on without you, it would be even more painful for them to go on without anything. Mutual of New York. Money for the future. 
Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives. Dave's Archives is the premier spot on YouTube where you can get your vintage TV fix, including old commercials and original shows covering classic TV and other TV-related pop culture. Here's just a small taste of what they have in store for you. It's not easy when you're new in town. Except when you have something that makes huge bubbles. Amazing bubbles. Bubble thing makes people curious. How can anything make bubbles as big, as giant, as monstrous as bubble thing makes them? Nobody, nobody seems to be able to resist the kind of bubbles bubble thing makes. Can you? Bubble thing makes colossal bubbles and it's new from Whammo. Want to check out the rest of it? Go to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can visit them on Facebook. Again, search Dave's Archives. And now, back to my punishment for the week. Okay, back to the subject. Act 5 begins with Todd bummed out because he thought he was making a breakthrough with Gina, but she didn't return from school the night before for some reason. That reason being... I'm flunking out of school. That's how come I had to stay. Oh, I, I didn't know that, Gina. Well, now you do. And you can forget about me coming over anymore. Since everyone else thinks I'm letting them down, the last thing I need is to get the same garbage from you. Gina, I'm sorry. Maybe I could help you. How? I can explain things better than those dumb teachers. I can teach you how to really concentrate. Do that? Sure. So, ignoring just how easily teens were forgiving of each other back then versus ghosting somebody in this day and age, Todd essentially becomes Gina's Mr. Cater, minus the afro and mustache. After some cheating through primordial Zoom, Todd tries to enjoy the great outdoors once again and recommends that his parents do too for the first time in their lives. You know, you guys could use a little sunshine yourselves. Starting to look real old. Todd. Dad, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but it's true. I mean, you never take a vacation or buy new clothes. Look at that dress, Mom. Dad, you never do anything for yourselves. So they do. And for pretty much the rest of the movie, it's Todd left to his own devices, both figurative and literal. And at first... Todd seems to be coping well with the aid of a hospital nurse who bears a striking resemblance to someone you want to throw from the train. He brought me the unsalted nest. The unsalted nest makes me choke. But that's not his only good news. Todd, look, my report card for the semester in A and Art and all the rest are B's. No kidding. Well, thanks to you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's celebrate, okay? How? I don't know. Think of something you'd like to do, something special. Okay, take me riding with you. Oh, sure. What are you going to do? Just walk out of there? I might. Well, I don't see a problem with that. I mean, he's been outside in his aquarium several times so far in the film, and now that we're an hour in, Gina's incredulousness seems a little forced, but no matter. Todd goes back outside to watch her ride her horse. Again, nothing wrong with that. Gina, ride for me, okay? Okay. (laughs) Gina! and then jump over the canoe and come back as fast as you can. And once again, I see nothing wrong with this. After all, Todd's been barely outside his entire life and he doesn't get a chance to experience nature all that often. So let him have his fun. Master Gina! Now jump over me, Gina. Wait, 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 wait. What? Jump over me, Gina. Wait, Todd. You better not be seriously considering doing that. Come on! Gina, 
the canoe. I've seen you jump twice as high. Todd, what if I miss? Tina, you won't miss. I know you. You're, you're too talented to miss. Todd, you are really a weird kid. Do you know that? Yeah, I know it. Just do it, Gina, okay? Okay. Are you out of your fucking mind? Do you have any idea how much danger you're putting him in? One false move and he'll never become America's third favorite Scientologist! Sorry, I know this is just a movie, but it's also a movie based somewhat on the lives of actual people. If I had a kid who lived in a bubble and my next door neighbor's kid jumped over his bubble with a fucking horse, I would call some kind of authority figure. Honestly not sure if it would be the police or child services, but I'm kind of surprised there isn't a law about jumping over a protective bubble with a fucking horse! Surely, the burly nurse watching all this is going to do something about it, right? Listen, I'll be back later to help you get inside, okay? Which one is he? Well, that's Tom. Bruce drives a blue Chevy. No consequences. Absolutely no consequences whatsoever about putting an immunocompromised kid in mortal danger? You deserve your coronavirus. What's more, all that mortal danger looks like it's about to become an aphrodisiac between the two. Put your face up against the plastic. What for? I did what you wanted me to do, now do it. And while a seven-year-old Brian Fuller gets his first idea for pushing daisies 25 years later, the parents come home just in time for Todd to tell them about a major step in progress. Listen, I got something I want to tell you. I want to go to school. Yeah. You are in school. No, I mean, really go to school. Dr. Gunther said he'd set it up if you guys said it'd be all right. Here, look, I'll show you. Through a crude blueprint, Todd convinces his parents to send him to school in person, wearing an earthbound spacesuit. And for the sake of this being a movie, sure, why not? We already had a girl jump over him with a horse, so let's just continue with blurring the lines of plausibility. So now, Todd, dressed as a human oven mitt, I assume, physically steps out of his parameters for the first time. A scene that would honestly have a lot more impact were it not for a fucking horse that... I'm sorry. Dropping it. It's a happy moment for him. Moving on. Act 6 starts with Mike Brady double-checking to see if Todd can cope with being bubble-suited on his own. Leave the driving to me. Okay, listen, the filters and the fans are fine, the batteries are up, but the pressure gauge on the main line reads 75%, then what do you do? I don't do anything. I just stay there, and I get my teacher to go get you, and then you take me home, right? I want you to check everything on your checklist every break between classes, or I'll break your arm. All right. With that piece of parenting firmly in place... Todd arrives at school, where he blends in as best as any kid dressed in a hyperbaric oven mitt can do. Hey, could I ask you a question? Yes? Do you ever feel like a visitor from outer space? Uh, you're gonna have to ask his Scientology alter ego that question. While you were still learning how to spell your name, I was being trained to conquer galaxies! After gaining their trust, the kids and 22-year-old, 16-year-old Travolta make their way to the school's football field, where they continue to probe about Todd's existence. (laughs) 
Oh, my mistake. I should have added pondering existence while getting high off their asses. God, it's not you. It's just your suit. Hey, you got to be able to laugh at yourself. I mean, I mean, you got to. It's funny. Ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's funny because he's in a suit that helps him to live. <laughs> no, really, really, he could die without the suit. <laughs> Seriously, what the hell's so funny about that? Have you guys ever heard of, of out-of-body travel? Sure, I saw a thing about it on Twilight Zone once. It's where you can leave your body and go anywhere you want. That's right. Well, I do it all the time. Oh, yeah? Where do you go? Lots of different places. But mostly the planet that I'm from, Thermopolis. Right. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I think you might be more at home on the planet Cyclo. Man animals can't fly. I'm telling you, man animals don't fly. Okay, I promise no more Battlefield Earth clips. Be glad I've gone this long in this review without using any of Travolta's movies. I, th I think it's a, an exchange program. You see, I was sent here, and someone from here was sent there. One day we'll be switched back again. If it weren't for this secret journal I found, I would have never known anything about it. God damn it. Okay, one more, but that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Now that we got that out of our system, we return to class. But not before Travolta challenges a Christopher Atkins lookalike to a push-up competition. Well, it's nice to see the kids count the exact number of people who saw the movie Gotti in a theater. But at what cost? Since at that very moment, Todd's suit malfunctions. Which also makes me wonder if his suit is made out of any horse-related material as part of a karmic payback for that jumping scene a few minutes ago. Fortunately, Todd gets out of the horse suit just in time to remain Ha 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 ha! Stay in the lab! Stay in the lab! Todd, are you alright? Please don't tell my father. Oh no, we won't tell anybody. Hey, where's my ten bucks? <laughs> Playing with death sure is fun, isn't it? <laughs> Unfortunately, Gina didn't care for that at all. What if you had died out there? How could I ever live with that? Gina, I was just doing it so you'd see. See what? That you're just as dumb as all the rest of them? Oh, Gina, I'm so sick of it. I'm so sick of feeling like a hospital case. Like some weirdo kid who, who can't even breathe normal air because he might get sick and die. I just want to be like a man. Someone you could care about. And not feel sorry for. Someone who dances awkwardly in 90% of his movies. Someone who talks about French McDonald's burgers with Samuel L. Jackson. Someone who tries to humanize a notorious mobster. You know, a man, I swear. Todd. Todd, I don't know what you're doing to me. <laughs> don't ask me. You're the one that kissed him through a plastic sheet. But just as it seems as though she doesn't want to get too close to him, 
The movie reminds us that it's a movie, where reality is flexible and people can change their minds about things at the drop of a hat. Um, you wanna go to the beach tomorrow? And sure enough, the final act of the movie starts off with that trip to the beach. Just the mere sight of Travolta frolicking on the beach in his horsehair oven mitt bubble suit might almost make this movie worth watching just for how dumb the visual is. But remember that this is supposed to be a drama. All my life I've wondered what it's like to be you. And all my life, I always wondered what it was like to be you. Is Gina the long-lost daughter of Nicolas Cage? I'd like to take his... his face... off. Regardless of how creepy that would be between two teenagers, Todd and Gina finally get their feelings about each other into the open. And it seems as though there's nothing left to worry about, save for that pesky, not being able to breathe without medical equipment problem. After graduating from high school and finding out that Gina's about to leave Todd for art school in New York, Dr. Randolph Duke returns one more time. I suppose he'll tell Todd about a new kind of treatment, or a more slimline version of his bubble suit, or... How soon could I leave on my own immunities? You know I can't answer that. Thank you for coming, Ernie. Have Travolta be a dick to him again? Look, I get it. Moody Teen's got a Moody Teen himself. But the doctor is a guy who, along with Todd's parents, is somebody that he's practically known his entire life and is trying his damnedest to help cure. At this stage in the game, I wouldn't exactly go biting the hand that feeds you. Todd, if somewhere in that brain of yours, you're actually thinking of... <laughs> I was just asking, Ernie, that's all. And without further hesitation, I think the time has come to discuss the ending of the movie. One morning, before everybody else is awake, Todd decides that he's fed up with being cooped up. And after being constantly told by Dr. Randolph Duke that his immunities have been building up, we're about to see just how built up they are. In a sequence that I can only describe as milking the shit out of something for all it's worth, Todd begins the process of stepping out of his bubble and breathing actual air for the first time. A scene that I legitimately have no problem with. Or, at least, I would have no problem with it were it not for the following things, none of which includes a Paul Williams song. What would they say if we up and ran away from the roaring crowds and the worn-out city faces? Though I will say that this is now the second TV program that I've covered in telehealth that involves Williams, Robert Reed, the 1970s, and the ABC network combined. I'm not sure if this counts as a coincidence or a reminder of karma in the universe. But, like I said, that's not what bugs me about this ending. Nor is it the fact that, as a first-time outsider, Todd is genuinely curious about various pieces of nature. He touches trees, leaves, and bushes, and despite the dopey grin that he has on his face, that's not the result of any allergic reaction. Nor is it the fact that he's outside without wearing any shoes. But, to be fair, this was probably a spur-of-the-moment decision. Nor is it the part where Todd is touching Gina's face and kissing her for real. Todd! So much softer than I ever imagined. 
and nor is it the fact that they end the movie by having the two of them riding off together on her horse and possibly creating further biological endangerment. You want to know what really pissed me off about this ending? That might be best explained in the nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. The thing that pissed me off the most about this movie, and particularly the ending, is the fact that the two boys who supposedly inspired this movie never got a chance to experience the ending for themselves. John Travolta got to kiss a girl, but the real Ted DeVita, who wore his own bubble suit, he died in 1980 at age 18 due to a series of blood transfusion complications that would become easier to resolve in the 21st century thanks to advancements in science. John Travolta got to ride on a horse with presumably no consequences either from his parents or his deficient immune system. But the real David Vetter? He was 12 years old when he died in 1984 from immune deficiency-related lymphoma. In fact, upon watching the movie, Vetter and his family actually questioned how sterile the bubble suit in the movie really was, and that it wasn't as easy as slipping the suit on and off. It would have to have been sterilized every time he wore it. Now... With that information, you would think that an ending like The Boy in the Plastic Bubbles would actually be considered a hopeful one. Not just to the two boys, but to anybody watching who would think that there would be hope for the hopeless. And on the surface, yes, I can see that. But seeing a happy ending like this just about showcases the number one problem that I have with so-called disease of the week movies. The fact that more often than not, they take people's suffering and give it a Hollywood ending, even though the reality is far less positive for many. And you can't get any more fraudulent than false hope. And too much reliance on false hope is enough to make one bitter and angry through years of seething wrath. As for the actual content of the movie, we don't really see what happens after Travolta and the girl ride off on their horse for parts unknown. Does he actually survive breathing in the air once thought unbreathable? Do his parents file a missing persons report after realizing their kid isn't in his protective environment? Does breathing in non-circulated air make one want to convert to Scientology? Questions that we will not have any answers to because the movie's open ending put all those thoughts in limbo. And finally, I will add that no incubation in the world can stop a 22-year-old, 16-year-old from pining over an unrequited to ultimately fully requited crush due to overflowing teen hormones. An easy mark for lust. Otherwise, with the exception of that ending, it was still presented decently enough to keep me entertained. And as ironic as it may seem down here, despite how cheesy it is, the movie has earned its reputation as a TV classic in more ways than one. The Boy in the Plastic Bubble earns four out of nine circles of telehell. In the film's aftermath, it helped further propel John Travolta's career. In fact, the director of the movie, Randall Kleister, teamed up with him again two years later to make the movie version of Grease. Diana Hyland would win a posthumous Emmy Award for her motherly role in 1977, and the story would go on to inspire many walks of life. From advances in science and medicine... Using gene therapy techniques, a type of disease called Severe Combined Immunodeficiency, or SCID, has a high likelihood of successful treatment. To TV shows making light of just how cheesy the movie was. Oh no! <laughs> 
I'm so sorry, it's the moops. The correct answer is the moops. The boy in the plastic bubble was just one of those things that... Oh, for fuck's sake, what did I do now? Hey, I'm wrapping it up. I know the episode went a little long, but... That's not why we're calling, honey. Was it something I said? Nope. Do I need to make up an assignment? Uh Uh-uh. Then what gives? We're asking some of our personnel to vacate their offices for a few weeks for some deep cleaning. Apparently, we've been getting a glut of souls down here lately, and a lot of them are people who refuse to take any COVID vaccines, mostly anti-vaxxers and the state of Florida, since what they breathe down here gets into our heating ducts. It should take about a month or so to sterilize everybody who comes down here. Well, what am I supposed to do until then? I can't just wander aimlessly around hell with nothing to do. Then find something to do. Hell wouldn't be hell without improvising a little. What about that crossover you did with the Happy Days podcast a few weeks ago? Didn't you record about an hour of stuff with them? You can do one of those uh, cutting room floor shows for that. Okay, that's fine for one week, but what about the other three? Why not tell a couple stories from when you were alive? I mean, you had to have led some kind of life before coming here, right? Uh, sure. Why not? And then, after a few of those, you can use the remaining week to talk about the remaining shows on your contract for the season. It's gotta fill some time. Why are you telling me all of this? Well, I'm not supposed to say anything until later, but the boss has some specific plans for you. And you need to look busy for him, even though this is technically nothing more than a bunch of time killers. Is he still pissed off at me about that attempted escape? Oh, he's way past that. He's too preoccupied planning all the world's winter storms with Zeus, Poseidon, Jupiter, and Sam Champion. Just try to stay busy during the next month. It'll look good for you in the summer. If you insist. Don't worry, honey. You'll do great. Uh-oh. Gotta go. The boss is trying to carry Poseidon to his office. Poor guy. Drank one too many slippery nipples. That's why Texas is under so much ice right now. Well, I guess this means I'm on a working vacation for the next month. I won't be here, yet I will be here at the same time. So, let's see... One month from now, that'll be... April 4th. That's when our next real episode will be. But next time on Telehell, outtakes from the Joni Loves Chachi Review with Joe and Peter from the Happy Days podcast. That's God okay. damn, this episode is a laziest piece of shit. Oh my God. But anyway, I just got through saying all this nice stuff about Happy Days, and Richie's a girl exposed to the Cunninghams has got to be like one of the lamest freaking pieces of junk. Until then... If it's not in telehell, it's not worth a damn. The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. 
Not unlike certain viruses, telehell is everywhere now. In addition to Stitcher, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, we can also be heard on Google Podcasts and the iHeartRadio app. Of course, we can also be heard in a number of other places just by Googling telehell. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe, and follow our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Mm-hmm.